I, I was just asked if I'm going to talk that fast the rest of the time, and uh, I feel like I might have to because we're covering a very big subject. And while that video talked about some of the things that you commonly hear and why you can dismiss those arguments, today what we need to do is go a little deeper into why we can trust the text, the actual written pages that you hold in your hands that are called the Bible. And we really need to start with defining what the Bible is. When you hear that word Bible, we get it because the Greek word is biblia. And what the word literally means is books. So we call it the Bible or the book because it is containing the books. Now, when it comes to the books of the Bible, uh, there are 66 books. And you can really think of the Bible as a library of books because it contains a variety of different uh, individual books that come together to tell a unified story of God's plan of redemption. As you look at the scriptures, what you find is there are 39 books in the Old Testament. If you talk to a Jewish person, they hold the first 39 books, what we call the Old Testament, to be God's scripture, his revealed word to us. Now, those 39 books are not referred to by the Jews as the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. And the reason they do that is they take the letter T, N, and K. T stands for the teachings. Sometimes people will say the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. And then you have uh, the N stands for the Nevim or the prophets, and Kedavim are the writings. Now, in the scriptures, we have different genres or literary styles. So when, when it comes to the different books, we need to understand as you read them, you have to read them in their context. Some are the books of the law, as I already mentioned. Some uh, will cover other areas that you see up there, history. There's wisdom and, and uh, poetry books. There are the prophets. Now, you hear them called the major and the minor prophets. It's not because some are more significant than others. It's simply related to their size. The major prophets are those that are large in, num in, in number of chapters. Isaiah, for instance, has 66 chapters. The minor prophets are smaller in size. You have Obadiah, which has a single chapter. So that's why they're referred to as the major and the minor prophets. Now, in the New Testament, we have 27 books. We have the Gospels. Uh, they're called the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to see together. And so as you saw that illustration of the car where you have different perspectives, where you look at things, the writers are reporting different perspectives and they were written to different audiences. And so you have the different gospels and, and you um, have the uh, history is in the book of Acts. Prophecy is the book of Revelation, and then you have what are called the letters or the epistles, and those are all of the, uh, the letters that we read to the various churches. And so when we look at the, the 66 books of the Bible, there are these different type of genres or backgrounds, and they come together. Now, I keep saying 66 books because what you need to understand is there is what's called the Protestant canon. Now, the word canon that you've heard comes from the Greek word kanon, and what that word means is it was originally used to define a straight rod, a reed, or a stalk of some kind that was used as a standard of measurement. You can think of a yardstick today we would use. Well, they would have uh, these things that were cut to size, and they used them as a ruler. And it came to describe something that was an instrument of measurement. So when we say something has been canonized, they're saying there is a, an accepted standard of what the scriptures are. Now, in the Catholic canon, there are 15 additional books. And these are in the Old Testament, and they're called the Apocrypha. If you've ever heard this, 
The, the Greek word apocrypha means the secret or hidden things. And in the Catholic canon, they believe that the uh, Old Testament apocrypha should be a part of the accepted scriptures. So let me just give you a, a quick background as to uh, how the process came about, why the Protestants did not uh, canonize these particular books. Around 450 AD, Jerome translated the scriptures into Latin, or what is called the Vulgate. And when the books were translated into this, because of the history of the church and the accepted standard at the time, he did not translate uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha into the um, Latin Vulgate. The rabbinical council, when they canonized the Hebrew text, they did not accept these Old Testament Apocryphal books into uh, the, the Hebrew canon. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they did translate these into the, the Greek text. And so you have these, these two schools that were going along, and as you look back in history, one of the, the greatest arguments against including the Apocrypha is that neither Jesus nor the apostles recognized these as inspired scripture. They stuck with the more restrictive Jewish canon of the 39 Old Testament books that we have. The, in early church writings, Melito of Sardis, who lived in AD 170, did not include the Apocrypha, nor did Cyril of Jerusalem, who lived around 315 to 386 AD. He referred to the Apocrypha as the outside books, so they were not canonized. Uh, the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin, argued against including the Apocrypha, and they only accepted the 66 books that we have. It wasn't until 1545 to 1560 AD, it's something called the Council of Trent, that the Catholic Church formalized and canonized the Apocrypha as a part of their accepted scripture. So you have 1,500 years of history going on where these books were in debate and they were received by the Catholic Church at that time. Now in 1611, when the King James Version of the Bible was translated into English, the first editions of the King James did include the Apocrypha, but they put them as an appendix in a separate section in the Bible, and later translations removed these. So when we talk about scriptures today, I want you to understand I'm talking about the 66 books that are referred to as the Protestant canon. Now when we think of these books, they were written over 1,500 years, 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And they came from a wide variety of backgrounds. There were kings, judges, statesmen, scribes, priests, prophets. There was a physician, a tax collector, carpenters, fishermen and farmers. Some were highly educated like Moses, like Isaiah, like Paul. Others were unschooled men. There were those who, uh, the Bible contains the work of freemen and slaves. There were landholders and laborers. There were people who were prosperous and poor. As you look at the Bible and where it was written, it was written in prisons and cities and wilderness areas in times of war and peace. It was written on three different continents, in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And it was written in three different languages, in Hebrew, Greek, and in some instances in Aramaic. And yet, as you take all of these different authors over all of this time, and many of these writings were not seen by the other men, they all come together and form one single unified story. Now, how could this be? What well, happened because what God did was superintended the writing of his word. Second Peter 1.21 tells us, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. These men did not write down their own words, but they wrote down words that they were guided by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now when it says all scripture, the Greek word for scripture is graphe. And graphe is a word that means to graph, to write down, or draw it out. And what we're told is that God took his word and he put it in plain text. He had it written down so we could read it and see it and understand it. The scriptures are written down so that we can study them and see what God wanted us to know. Jesus used this word scripture, graphe, in Luke 24, 27, when he said, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. As Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, he says, For this reason... We are constantly, we, con- we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. We know what we have is the word of God because we are told that the graphe is the written or inspired word of God. Now, the Greek word for inspired here is theopanoustasis, and what it means is God breathed. It means that God is the one who produced the words that we have, that we read in the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that it was written in total, the way that the first Ten Commandments were. You remember in Genesis, we're told that God himself inscribed in stone the first giving of the Ten Commandments before they were broken by Moses. And then we are told that uh, God gave us the rest of the Scriptures. Now, how he did that, didn't, God didn't sit there and, and dictate the material word for word, and the, the writers of the st- sat there like a court stenographer writing out what God told them word for word. What God did was he transmitted it through a process that I think is best defined by Dr. Charles Ryrie. He says, God superintended, God's superintending of human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs, his revelation to man. Now, when it says that God used their individual personalities, what it means is the way that Paul writes is going to be different than the way that Peter writes. And so we will be getting uh, God's word with a little different direction and a a little different emphasis that is coming through the language of the day, the person, or other things like that. Now, again, these these are wholly God's word. When you look at the four gospels, you see different styles. Luke was a medical doctor. He was a physician. Then you have Matthew, the tax collector. And each of these are going to report things differently. But each is being guided by God in the process. Now, what does it mean without error in the words of the original autographs? What that means is the Bible that is in my hand up here or the ones that you have in your hand today are not the original writings. That means they are not the first uh, edition, the the literal hand of the person writing on, on papyri, a beaten out piece of reed to make paper or a sheepskin or something like that. What we have are copies of the original. 
And this is where people get into problems because they say, how did we, how do we know what we have is true? Because we're told that this isn't without error. So today I want to walk you through a process called textual criticism. Now remember the Bible was written down over 1,500 years. And what that means is that some of these original writings are over 3,500 years old. And, and the paper, the sheepskin, the other things that they were written on, has, has disintegrated during the times of persecution. These things were destroyed and other things. But God preserved his word through it. And, and what we have are copies of the copies that were made over time. Now, when these copies were made, there were mistakes that were made in transmitting the text. And these are called variants, because what you're saying is this copy varies from this one. So the word textual variance means that as you look at manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, and you're comparing them, you'll say, well, there is a variant in this one and this one. So let me walk you through what this process means. Now, to figure out uh, what is the original or not, what they do is they will go back and they will look at manuscripts. This is one that is called the Dead Sea Isaiah Scroll. You heard about in 1947, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the caves in, of Qumran. They additionally found more and more manuscripts as they searched other caves, but this is one of the more famous. This is a, a complete text of the book of Isaiah. And they're very excited about this because it's over 2,000 years old. This is a, a, a copy that is over 2,000 years old. Now, this is a full and complete manuscript. There are other manuscripts they have that are, are not complete. An example would be P46, papyri, because it's written on that 46. And this one has multiple books of the New Testament and other portions of Scripture in it, but it is not a complete, uh, they call a complete uh, Bible a codex. And this is not, this is a portion. And then you even have what are called like unsels. And these are tiny fragments and it would be like tearing a portion of a page out of your Bible. And you have a little bit of scripture on one side and on the other. And so you can go in in these particular passages and, and see these words. Now you'll notice everything is labeled. Everything has letters. Everything has numbers. And the reason for this is so that textual scholars, as they're comparing the different manuscripts, they know what they're looking at. Now when it comes to the manuscripts... When we look at all the evidence that we currently have, and I say currently because every single year they are discovering more and more ancient manuscripts. They have over 14,000, let that sink in for a minute, 14,000 Hebrew manuscripts. For New Testament, in the original Greek language, they have 5,800, over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. They have 10,000 that are in Latin. Some of these were translated in the second century, so you see the age of them. They have over 9,300 manuscripts that are in other ancient languages like Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Coptic, Armenian, and many other languages. There are over a million quotations of scripture in the early church writings. Some of these are from the first century. And so if you were writing a book and you were quoting scripture, so we're able to go through. So you see all of these different sources that we have to compare. Now in comparison to what we have for the, the, the Bible, when you look at other Greco-Roman ancient writings, the average Greco-Roman manuscripts have less than 20 copies. The writings of Plato, they only have seven documents. There are 49 for Aristotle. And the, the, the number one highest number other than biblical writings is the manuscript for Homer's Iliad, and they only have 643 copies of that. 
So when you look at the evidence that we have, we have tens of thousands of manuscripts that we can go back and we can compare. So when we look at how the Bible was originally written, let me explain the process to you. Now, again, don't get overwhelmed with this chart. Uh, this is just for illustration. The original autographs would be the person who is firsthand writing out the text. And then what they did is they sent these manuscripts out to different geographic areas. And you see some of these that are mentioned there. Alexandrian, uh, this is before 150 AD. Uh, the book of Revelation was written around 90 AD. So you see that those manuscripts are less than 60 years uh, removed from the original. You have what's called neutral, and these are even older than that. Some of these are first or second generation copies removed from the original writing. You have the Western manuscripts, which again are around 150 AD. You see the Coptic around the second century. Now, when you see those lines kind of crossing each other, what that means is sometimes the manuscripts in that particular family came from more than one original geographic area. And let me walk you through this and explain what that means. Uh, one that many people have heard of is the majority text. You see that, the Byzantine? And that's because during the Byzantine period of history, around the fourth century, they had turned almost into a Xerox situation. You know, today when we want a copy, we put it on a photocopier and it makes it. Remember, all the copies were originally being done by hand. And around the Byzantine time period, they had monastic communities where they had set up for scribes to be copying and producing uh, numerous copies. And so it's called the majority text because we have the most of these manuscripts today. Now, it doesn't mean that the amount and number alone wins because remember the age that's closer to the original uh, is, is often more important. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were such an exciting find because they were a thousand years older than the previous Old Testament manuscripts that they had. And so these, these were allowed them to go back to jump generations back to the original to cross-check. And, and the, the process of copying was so meticulous. What they found when they went a thousand years backwards to look at the Isaiah scroll and compared it with what they had previously, they found only six variants in a thousand years. And those were all related to spelling. So again, you see the, the, the great care. I wish we had the time to, to talk about how they copied the text and cross-checked by letter counts and word positions and things, but suffice it to say that they were very meticulous, very careful in how uh, they brought these things uh, through the generations. Now, let me walk you through the process in simple terms. So we're only gonna use three families as an example. And let's say that God used me to originally write a letter to one of the churches, to Wayside Chapel, if it was inspired scripture, and it's not today. But if I were to write this letter, now I have the original, and we're going to say that this area over here, this section of pews right here, are the Alexandrian geographic area. So you want a copy of the letter that I've written. So I make a copy, and I send it to Alexandria. We're going to call this section the neutral area, and the western are going to be over here. Y'all are the western territory. And the aisles are geographic dividers. They may be mountains, they may be seas, they may be other things. But what it's going to do is keep your copies from getting over here and your copies from getting over there and vice versa. And so we have these three different families. And so let's say the original set of manuscripts. Now, there are over 3.6 million letters in the Bible. And I'm only going to simplify it here by saying we're going to say three capital A's are going to represent the totality of the text. 
And so I make these, these copies, and there are five first-generation copies. And you see they were letter-perfect in the totality of the manuscript. So on the first row here, Phyllis gets one copy. She's the first generation. And then Charlotte, you're going to have a copy over here. And then Jim, you and Sharon are going to have a copy over here in the Western. So in the front row, everybody has copies of the scripture. Now, the folks in the second row are all saying, hey, wait a minute, I want a copy of the scriptures. So now it's up to y'all to reproduce and to copy out letter perfect each of the manuscripts and pass them back to the next generation, the next church, congregation, area that the scripture will go to. Now, whoops, somebody made a mistake. We see that along the way, several of the manuscripts are word, letter, perfect. But over here in the Alexandrian era, we have two capital A's and a small letter A. And that, what that may be is just simply a capitalization error. Instead of capitalizing a word, you made it a small letter. That's called a variant. Now, over here in the Western area, they made an, a mistake as well. And what they may have done, instead of recording 1,000 sheep, they wrote 100 sheep. That's called a textual variant. Now, when these copies of the manuscript are done, guess what? Because the next generation are so faithful in copying the text, they are going to copy word perfect the mistake that was made. So we see the variant gets carried on in each generation. But here in the neutral territory, notice that there is now a new variant. I put two capital C's in the beginning. And what they will find in the, in the manuscripts is sometimes the scribe said, you know, this doesn't read very clearly. I want to add a little commentary. I want to make it a little better. And so this person has now added in some clarification in the text. They've created a new variant that did not exist before. Now, as we look at these textual variants, I've numbered them along the bottom. The three capital A's are, are, all, are number one. The small a is number two. The double C is number three. But you notice over here where we have uh, the two capital A's and the small b twice, I've labeled that as four and five. And you're saying, wait a minute, that's the same variant. Why are you giving it a different, why are you multiplying the number? And the reason for that is because every time you have a variant, it is counted as a variant. So if I make 50 copies of the same changed text, that counts as 50 variants. Because as you're comparing all of the manuscripts, these tens of thousands of manuscripts, you compare the variants in the total count. Now, when it comes to the amount of variants that we have in the scriptures, there are over 300,000. And you go, whoa, 300,000 variants I don't know if I can trust the Bible. Hold on and stay with me. Let me explain why. First of all, one of the things you need to understand is the fact that we have so many manuscripts means we have so many variants. If I were to go out and burn and destroy every single copy of the manuscripts except for one, guess what? We now have no variants because I only have one text, so it doesn't vary from anything I can compare it to. So the very fact that we have so many texts means we have so many variants, because you've got all these copies that have been multiplied. Now, the problem with destroying all the text is that now we no longer have things to cross-compare. So how do we go backwards to figure out what the original writing said? Well, in this situation, Remember, we have preserved manuscript copies geographically. Your copies have not cross-corrupted these copies. 
And so what we do is we go back and we look at the different families and we say we have reading number one in Alexandria in the neutral areas as well as Western. Do you see what you're able to do? You can go backwards and say, well, this is the same reading in these various places. And remember, we don't just have three families. We have multiple families, and we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts within each of these particular families. And so this is one of the ways that we can go back and we can find the accuracy of what the original writing may have been. Now, when it comes to variants, I told you there are hundreds of thousands of them. Well, let me tell you about how these have been categorized. 75% of the variants have been labeled as being insignificant. Now you're saying, wait a minute, Roger. We're talking about the Bible, and Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So labeling something in the scripture as a variant as being insignificant doesn't really sound right. And, and I agree with you. It's called insignificant for this, ver for this one reason. It doesn't change a single thing. It doesn't change a single thing. Because the vast majority, 75% of these variants, are related not to the meaning of the text. It's related to uh, something like, for example, the, the number one variant that we find throughout the manuscripts is called a movable new. Now, what's that? Well, new is the letter N. And so a movable new is when you attach it to a, a, a vowel before a word, it's like an indefinite article. If you say a or and this, you know how you put a, a, a consonant in before a vowel? So if you say a, uh, an apple, well, if you make it a apple, that's grammatically incorrect, but you've created a variant, and that's what's called an insignificant variant. It doesn't change my faith. Does it change yours? No. The second most common group is related to a synonym or a change in word order, which the Greek text is very flexible in word order. It's like some languages, English doesn't work this way, but the, the word order creates emphasis. Or you could simply say Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus. That would be a variant, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. That's the vast majority. Uh, are the insignificant and then the second group. Now, the third group is what we call meaningful variants, but they're not viable. Now, what does that mean? They're called meaningful because they change the meaning of the text, but they're called not viable because we know it's not the right reading. But we still count it, but we, we were able to dismiss it as a wrong reading. Let me give you an example. If you read Luke 6.22, the English Standard Version translates the scripture this way. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now here it is, on account of the Son of Man. It's, it's a variant because one manuscript lacks the words on account of the Son of Man. Now it's called meaningful because if you remove on account of the Son of Man, what it simply says is, any of you who get persecuted for any reason, well, then that's, that's related to, to God. Well, no. What the text is telling us is when we are persecuted because we are believers. You see why it's a meaningful variant? Now, we know it's not a, a viable one because it only shows up in one manuscript from the 11th century. So we have all these tens of thousands of other manuscripts that, that have the other readings. So we're able to say this variant is dismissed. 
Now, the last and smallest category, it composes less than 1% of all variants, is called meaningful and viable. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means it's important because it changes the meaning of the text, and it's viable because it, it could be. So what do we do with it? Well, let me give you some examples of this. If you, if you read in Mark 9.29, it says, And he said to them, this kind, speaking of de demonic stuff, it says, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Okay? Now, a variant reading says, And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. Okay? Somebody has added these words or deleted the words in fasting. That's called a variant. Now, it's significant because it changes the meaning of the text. If I'm going to go in and do spiritual warfare, am I to be all prayed up? Definitely. But am I also to fast before I go and engage in this intervention? You have a meaningful variant because it can change the actual practice. And it's viable because the age, and remember, we go back and we check the age and the, the quality of manuscripts and things, and you have this reading in more than one text. So which one is it? Well, I'm going to do both just to be safe before I go into battle in that case. Another one would be in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now flip over in your Bible to Mark 16. Because what I want you to look at is in your Bible, sometimes you get... Uh, the, the textual, those who are translating the text will give you indications sometimes when something is going on in their translation choice. For instance, if you ever see a word in italics in your text, what that's telling you is in the original writing, that word does not appear, but it is a proper supplied meaning. So they want you to know a literal word-for-word -word transliteration is happening, but in this place, they have put in supplied a meaning. Now, in the case of Mark 16, 9, some of you will notice that there are brackets or parentheses or something in your actual text. Do any of you see that? What that's telling you, and many of you will have a marginal note, a footnote or something in the margin, and what they're telling you is, we have put this in the Bible, but we're not sure that it actually belongs in the original, because we can't for sure say it belongs. Now, let me read you a note that I have in my Ryrie Study Bible related to this. It says, these verses do not appear in two of the most trustworthy manuscripts of the New Testament. Remember, we have these older and significant manuscripts. I'm not going to glaze your eyes over more than they are with telling you about all the textual criticism things. But there are certain manuscripts that are seen as the gold standard. And if you get agreement in these particular manuscripts, then textual scholars say, we have a winner. This is the best reading because they have been right in 99.9% .9 of all cases. So what we're told is in the, the best manuscripts, these particular verses don't appear. So why is it in here? Well, here we go. Though it's not in those, they do appear in many of the manuscripts and versions. If they are not a part of the genuine text of Mark, the, now why, why in the world did we include it then? Well, because if the Gospel of Mark ended right there, this is what he's saying, it's kind of an abrupt ending. You're reading along and uh, it just kind of stops. So it says it's probably here because the original closing verses were lost. The doubtful genuineness of verses 9 through 20 makes it unwise to build a doctrine or base an experience on them, especially verses 16 through 18. Now, if you read verses 16 through 18, you know what it's talking about there? 
handling poisonous snakes, drinking poison. You see, this is a significant variant because it, people actually base their spiritual practices on these texts. Have you ever heard of these rural-type churches in Appalachia where they're handling rattlesnakes and doing all this stuff? We're not handling snakes here at Wayside, by the way. But there are people who say it is in the Scripture we are told to do these things, so it is significant because it is driving the practice of people. And it is viable because it shows up in enough manuscripts that to be... Uh, intellectually honest, they're saying we are not going to remove it from the text. So what happened probably somewhere along this means of transmission, some scribe got a text where the bottom page had been ripped off or deteriorated, and he said, how should this end? And he created his own ending based upon, again, things he already knew from other scriptures, and he created a variant, kind of like that double C, on the middle example, and everybody since then has been copying his, his insertion. And so this is what we see when we, we're told something is significant but viable. Now, let me put your minds at ease with this. Of this 1%, less than 1% actually, of viable and significant variants, I can tell you that there is not a single major doctrine of the Christian faith that is at stake. And when I say major doctrine, I mean anything that relates to God, anything that relates to his word, anything that relates to Jesus Christ, anything that relates to salvation by grace alone through faith. There is not a single variant that questions our beliefs. John 3.16 that you have in your Bible, among the tens of thousands of, of manuscripts that are out there, there is not a single variant all the manuscripts agree, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, let me give you a real-world example to show you how this works. This is an actual page out of uh, my Nestle Alden 26. It's a Greek text that is a compilation of all the uh, manuscripts that are out there. Now, you see the arrow that I've highlighted a part of the text, ta or gay autal. Now that means the work, or gay means work or deed, the work or deeds of him. So the form that that's in, it modifies it. Now, if you go down here to the bottom of the page, you see verse 20 is referenced, and that's out of John 3.20. And you see that reading, ta or gay atal. Now you see all those letters, I told you every manuscript has something, that first letter is the Hebrew A, Aleph. And so that's a very significant manuscript. Then you have uh, bait, then you have, you see the Greek thing there. Uh, some of you were deltas in college. Well, there's your Greek letter. Now you see all those numbers. Those are like unsels. Remember I showed you that fragment. Every single thing has a number. Now you see further along Byzantine, lectionary. These are some of those uh, families of manuscripts I told you. There's the Vulgate, the Syriac, the Coptic, Armenian. And then you see things like this, Irenaeus, Origen. These are church fathers. So I told you you have millions of quotations in the the writings of some of these. So whenever you're reading a variant, when you're sitting at home saying, I just want to study the text, you can go through and you can actually see everywhere that a particular variant shows up. Now, I told you it's a variant, and the reason for that is if you go here, some manuscripts have autal, ta, or gay. Instead of saying the works of him, what they say is of him the works. Does that change your faith? No. It's, it's a word order modification. 
And then you see all the manuscripts where that shows up, Papyri 75 and all these other copies. Now, there's another variant reading. Uh, when you look at this, you have Ta Ergea Tau Hati Pana Esten. And what that's saying is the works of him that are evil. So you have the works of him. Well, somebody else has modified it to say the works of him that are evil. And again, you see uh, the different readings. And then you can even see some additional variants. Uh, instead of Esten, there's Isen, and there's various forms of the verb. And so what you have here, friends, this is an actual textual variant. And scholars are able to go back and look at every single manuscript, figure out which one is the, po is the most predominant reading. And they have settled on the top one, the works of him would be the most likely uh, text. Now, I've gone into all this depth so that you can understand what we're looking at. So that you can know when somebody tells you, well, you can't trust your Bible because it has all these mistakes in it. Yeah, it has mistakes in what we hold in our hand today. But the process that has been gone through is we know there was the original autograph, which we don't have. Copies of the original autographs were made in number two, the process we've talked about today. Textual scholars for thousands of years have been studying and studying and compiling, and as new manuscripts are found, they cross-check them, they go back and they look, and they create a, a text like the Nestle Alden, it's actually on the 27 now that I told you, the, the Greek text, that then our English text in, verse, in number four there are translated into English. So what you hold in your hand in an English text while it is not the original, and while it is not without error, and they have put the percentage at just under 99% accuracy in what you hold in your hand. And again, remember, there is not a single significant viable variant that affects the foundations of our faith. And so what you hold in your hand when you have an English reading of the Bible, you can trust the text. Now, where did this English translation come from? Well, as the texts were being translated, most of us here don't read Syriac or Coptic or other things like that, so that language translation has no meaning for us. We read English for the most part. And the first English translation was made by John Wycliffe when he translated the Latin Vulgate Bible into English. That was between the second and fourth centuries. The Latin Bible had been translated out of the original languages. And, and John Wycliffe, we talk about Wycliffe Bible translators today, it's, it's named after him because he gave us the first English translation. Now, William Tyndale was the first to translate uh, into English from the original Greek text. And he made that translation in 1526, and then his Old Testament translation was later published. Now, you would think that that was a cause for celebration, but Tyndale was burned at the stake by the leaders in the, the church at the time because they did not want the common person to have the, the Bible in a language they could understand. Before that, you had to know the original languages or a scholarly language like Latin. So if I, as the, the pastor, the priest, said to you, thus saith the Lord, you had no way of knowing what the Lord really said. But when the English Bible was placed into your hands and you had the privilege of being able to read God's word yourself, suddenly you could say, uh, Roger, it's not in the text. And so he was burned at the stake 
for what he, the disunity and uh, deception that he supposedly created by giving the word to the people. Now, other English translations came about. The most well-known is the King James Version. That was translated in 1611. And you'll, you've probably heard it called the authorized text. And what people say is that is the only Bible that you can use. But the authorized text doesn't mean it's the only Bible, English Bible, to be used. There is great beauty in the King James. I love reading the King James. It's very poetic, but you know what? It's, it's confusing at times too, isn't it? Because we don't speak old English. Now, they tried to solve that with the new King James translation where they cleaned it up a little, but there are other translations of the Bible that have come along, and those that are later have better manuscript translation to back check, because remember, for 400 years since then, they've been discovering new manuscripts. The Bible that I preach from every Sunday is called the New American Standard, the NASB. And I use that version of the Bible because it is the most literal word-for-word translation from the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic text. Now, the problem with that sometimes is it's a bit wooden, right? It's kind of stilted sometimes. Some of you who use the New International Version say, well, mine reads easier. And there's a reason for that. The NIV, when it was translated, they were trying to have a ninth grade reading level when they translated the text. So when it's coming up with the various... English translations that are out there, there there was a a target audience as they translated the text. Now, the New International Version has been updated in a more more recent translation, and my personal opinion is there are some gender-neutral changes that have been made to the text that I don't agree with. So, you know, it's still a fine translation, but if you're looking to buy a new Bible today, uh, there, are better op- there are better options out there. There's a new English translation called the Net Bible. There's the ESV, the English Standard Version. There's a variety of good, newer translations of the Bible that you can get. The bottom line is this. Whatever your personal choice of an English Bible is today, they're all good translations. So it's your personal preference. Now, there are some translations like the Message or the New Living Translation. These are what are called paraphrases, and I read those as well. Because I'm in the Scripture so much, there are times I want a different perspective or I want it to be a little fresh. The Message or the Living Bible are paraphrases, so you've got to be careful because they don't follow the text that closely. They're still great translations. They're great for devotional reading, for encouragement and edification. But if you're going to be doing a deep study in the Word, it's not the best one to use. Now, I said just about any Bible out there today is a good translation, with this exception. There are some heretical translations of the Bible. If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they use what's called the New World Translation. And that is not a good translation of the Bible. They have purposely gone in and changed the text in places to support their cultic teachings, to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They mistranslate the languages to serve their purpose. So do not accept the New World Translation as an accurate translation of the Bible. The Mormons use what is called the Joseph Smith Translation of the Bible. And Joseph Smith really took the King James Version of the Bible and he changed it in places. Again, to fit the errors that he was trying to promote through Mormonism, which is not a Christian religion. And when you read the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, you will find changes and additions from the original text. Let me just give you one example. If you read Genesis chapter 50, verses 30 through 33, 
In the Joseph Smith translation, it says that a future seer named Joseph, which refers to Joseph Smith, would come along. Now, I heard a few pages turning, and some of you are trying to see what Genesis 50, 30 through 33 says in your Bible. You're not going to find it if you have a good translation. You know why? Because the original manuscripts end at verse 26. There is no textual evidence for what Joseph Smith inserted. It is not a valid translation of the Bible. Now, we don't have any manuscripts for the Book of Mormon to go back and check. If you've studied Mormonism, you know they say that the angel Moroni showed up and, and showed Joseph Smith these golden plates, and that's how he translated the scriptures, and then the angel took the plates away. So you can check it in other ways. One of the ways that you cross-check the Book of Mormon is by the tests that the Bible gives to us to check its own accuracy. God said that if a prophet ever speaks a prophecy that does not come true, guess what? They are a false prophet. It's not, do they have a 99% record? And Mormons don't even have a 99% record. They have many failed prophecies. So what it says is you reject it as a false prophet. Remember two weeks ago, we walked through Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and we saw how God's word revealed to the very day, almost 600 years before it happened, when the Messiah would come. That's how you check the accuracy of your scriptures. Another way you can check the accuracy of your Bible is through archaeology. When you look at the Bible, the Bible has been proven over and over and over to be historically accurate. I wish I had the time to go into actual archaeological discoveries to show you times that they even said, you know, the Bible's wrong here because this city never existed or that king wasn't in power or that person didn't exist. And as archaeologists continue to make discoveries, they, they dig up things that, that have historical records of this person existed, that king was in power, this event did happen. To the point that now even atheist and agnostic archaeologists study the Bible to go out and find places to dig for cities or to look at history to cross-check things. In contrast to that, when it relates to the Book of Mormon, in 1982, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History issued a written statement saying the Book of Mormon is not a valid guide for archaeological exploration because so many of the things claimed in it have actually been found to be false. So when it comes to the Bible that you have in your hand, you can trust it. You can trust it because of the textual process. You can trust it because of the outside witness like archaeology. You can trust it because of the fulfilled prophecies that have taken place. Now, as we end our time today, what I want you to walk away with is this. Beyond us knowing what the Word of God tells us, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we're told, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately, adequate, equipped for every good work. What that tells us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is God gave us his written word so we could know him and we could know how to live our lives to impact the world for Jesus Christ. So as we leave today, as you go home and you take your Bible with you or you go to your house and you find it on your shelf there, take the time to open it up, to read it, to remember the great privilege that we have today to be able to read the Scripture in a language like English that we can understand. Think of men like John Tyndale who gave his very life 
so you could have those life-giving words and don't take for granted the privilege that we have to read his word. We join me as we close in prayer, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And may we be those who, as we read your word, that we act upon it. In the book of James, you tell us not to be merely hearers of the word, but to be doers. So, Father, would we be men and women, boys and girls of action? Would we respond to these life-giving words? Would we share them with others? And, Father, as we leave today, as many of us will be going to the church picnic, we pray that you will give us safety on the road. Would you give us safety in the park there at Morgan's Wonderland as we enjoy a time of food, fun, and fellowship with others? Help us to find even one person we don't know and just connect with them and make a new friend today. So we commit this day to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.